Hello, and thanks for joining us for Meet Me at the Movies. I am Noel T. Manning II, so glad to have a co-host we've been trying to get on the show to co-host for years. And uh, every time he says, but I'm in a different time zone. And so the <laughs> only way we convinced Jay Phelps from Nashville to be a co-host was if we could get every other time zone in the, uh, the, the United States other than yeah. in Hawaii. And so we had that with Kevin Smokler and also Christopher Boone, who are the filmmakers behind the film, Final Nation. How are you guys? Doing great. Thanks for having us, guys. This is yeah. awesome. Thanks so much. Glad you're here. And Jay, thanks for thanks for making the time, man. Sure, it's good to finally be here. I watch you all the time. Well, we've known each other for a thousand years, so it's it's good to be here. Yeah, really good to see you guys. Well, this, this documentary, uh, it covers so many different aspects of vinyl. Uh, and the, the vinyl record, we'll, we'll make sure we get that out there. Not like a vinyl jacket, but jacket. <laughs> not flooring. No, an actual record. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I love so many uh, elements of this documentary because it, it doesn't just look at the collectors. Uh, it doesn't just look at those who produce it, but it also looks at those who press it. And you get this history behind the factories. I, I'm just really blown away by your depth that you went to to make this happen and so uh who wants to dive in first with where the idea came from yeah i'll i'll, I'll start on that um the idea the idea was was mine and chris is really the person who made it a reality we like to say our partnership is i have the questions and he has the answers um Chris and I went to college together, but we, I'm two years older than him, so we did not overlap all that much, and we didn't really, we only sort of knew of each other. Um, I, I think I think it's fair to say we're more old new friends rather than new old friends. Um, and uh, I had been messing around with this idea for a good long time because Chris and I started talking in 2018, and by then the vinyl comeback. The, the renaissance of vinyl was 11 years old at that time. So we were pretty late to the party. And uh, Chris and I, I had been messing around with this idea of like, what do we make of that? Like, like what is there to say about that? Because it is, it is a feat unrepeated, in, not repeated in other areas of popular culture. You know, we have not seen a roaring comeback of the VHS tape. Or of the or of the of the of the original Penguin paperback you pick up on a train platform. Um, so why vinyl records? Um, but by the time we got to it, it was too late to just ask that question because they, people had been tangling with that question for 11 years. And so when I brought it to Chris, who was an experienced filmmaker, and I was a rookie filmmaker, and I admired his work a lot, I said. I said, we need to do something more than why and just talk to people, talk to people for 90 minutes about why they love records. Like, like people have loved records for 75 years and the question of why they've come back has been debated for the last decade. Uh, and, and then he's like, well, maybe the real question is like, what does it mean? Like, like what, is it, what does it say about our relationship with music uh, and with each other and the things we create? And I was like, that sounds amazing. And that is a way bigger project than we thought. So that is, that's not just talking to people who love records. That's talking to people who make them, who make their living on them, whose parents were into them, but they were born too late to be interested in records. Um, people who, uh, people who sell them at retail, musicians, like that, that was a, that was a much bigger film and we needed to justify the word nation in the title uh, with that one. Yeah. Uh, Christopher, dive in. Uh, anything you want to piggyback on that? Uh, yeah, just uh, when Kevin brought me the idea, I was intrigued because uh, my wife and I 
into records probably around 2014 uh, when my wife made the mistake of buying a turntable. <laughs> that meant I could buy physical music again. Um, but I was more interested because who's now 17, a turntable about a year later. And, you know, she had no relationship to music in a, in a physical format until she had a turntable and then started buying vinyl records because she's of the generation that, you know, had iTunes and then moved into Spotify. Um, but she definitely was connecting with music in a deeper way when she could go and actually get the record. And it certainly started as, you know, uh, wanting to support an artist and I think she's actually more adventurous than I am sometimes of just a buying record, just from the, what the cover looks like and from the used bin, you know, it's only a few bucks. Why not? <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I thought that was fascinating and having grown up with cassettes or CDs, it was just, it was odd to me, like she was attracted to, to records. So I was curious how the younger generation was getting into it. And just the fact, as Kevin was pointing out earlier, that it was something that we hadn't seen in other areas of pop culture. Um, so yeah, I, I was I was on board and we kicked it around for several months and it was probably around late 2018. I wanna say maybe like November, 2018 when um, we had a lot of people on the phone and I, I kind of said, Kevin, I think this should come out in 2020, probably in the fall, cause I think, I don't know. I think things might be a little divisive <laughs> time. Um, you know, I, I couldn't predict a pandemic, that's for sure. But we wanted to bring the movie out around this time because of that. And he said, that's that's a great idea. I said, awesome. Well, that means we got to start shooting in about March yeah. of 2019. So we got our acting gear. <laughs> well, Jay, you have been involved in music for how many decades now? Oh, gosh. Working in I and production for how long? Yeah, back to, I get back to the late 70s uh, in radio and uh, everything was vinyl back then. And maybe you guys can answer a question for me because this was mostly 45s back in those days in radio. Some sounded great and others you played them twice and they fell apart. Is, is there a reason behind that? Was it cost cutting by some labels? I've always wondered about that. Yeah, that's the short answer. The short answer is that the short answer is uh, the, the lesson I first received when I got into records as a grown up in, in, in 2007, which was in a very general way, if a record is big and thick, it's of higher quality than if it's flimsy and you can do this with it. Okay. And, uh, but uh, records, of course, carry with them every person who has touched them or handled them since they yes. came into your life. Yes. So uh, Chris and I like to say, yes, you can spend $45 on, on a big, fancy, thick record. And because some step along the way was done poorly or shoddily, the record is junk. Or you can have you can have a, a $7 record you, you, you fished out from an antique store beneath like a beneath like an old punch bowl. Uh, <laughs> and it could be really flimsy. And because it's been loved and cared for for right. most of its life and before it came into yours, it sounds great. So, uh, but generally, yeah, generally if it's flimsy vinyl, it means that someone was trying to uh, save a penny here or there. Because I remember uh, RCA singles sounded great. You could play them over and over and you get the, the 45s that the, uh, the Bee Gees came on. You played them twice and they sounded like they'd been <laughs> run over by a truck. And I was like, what, what's the deal with this? I always I mean, wondered it, about that. It probably got back to where the labels were spending their money to actually have those records pressed and get them out the door as fast as they could to the radio stations. I'd right. be curious to find out how many of the labels press the promo 45s that you were playing on a radio station at a different plant from maybe the ones that they were pressing for the consumers oh, to, to take them. I don't, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I, at that time, there were obviously way more record pressing plants. So it was a lot more uh, probably cost competition um, going on there oh, as I well. See, so I'm yeah. sure someone's like, oh, we'll cut you a deal. And then 
yeah, they were shorting them. You get on, what you paid for. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, they're like, oh, if we're just going to turn out this many, and it's a promo copy, they're thinking, oh, it doesn't need to last forever or something like that. That would just be, that would be my guess. Um, but, you know, RCA, they were all over the place, but they might have been getting pressed in Nashville, you know, at United Record Pressing, which is still around. Yes. Um, I just met somebody who worked there the other day. I couldn't believe it. It was it's so odd that we would be here talking about this because I met somebody who worked there and yeah. I was, I didn't know it existed. And they're yeah, the one, current, the longest continuous running press right now, right, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. Since since I believe the early to mid nineteen sixties, and the the original the original United Record Pressing building, which is in our movie, um, is now mostly mostly sort of a museum piece that they take people interested in the history of music production in Nashville to. But the new plant in East Nashville is about four times the size of the old one. It's it's like staring down the barrel of a football field when you're on it. Wow. And if anything is more of an indication that records have come back, it, it's the fact that the original United Record Pressing had 12 presses and the new one has something like 46. Um, and and we have them both in our movie to sort of illustrate that glorious contrast. I really appreciated so many things about how this sparked memories for me uh, because I grew up with a mom who worked in radio as a kid. So she would bring home demos for me. And uh, I remember getting those albums uh, in 45s as well before any of my friends. And so it was great to be able to introduce them to new music. And I remember uh, we lived in uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia, and there was this uh, record store named Oz uh, in Atlanta. And, you know, my mom would drop me off there on Friday nights, and I would just spend all Friday night walking through and just smelling that place and breathing in that place. And they would mm -hmm. have live musicians that would come in and play. And I remember every week I would you know, bring home something else that I was discovering. And I love that about the record stores that you could just go through and you would discover things, whether it was an import or whether it was just something you've never quite discovered before, or you'd hear something playing through the system and you're like, wait a minute, that's something different and unique. And I remember my mom, um, one of the first albums she brought me was Kansas Point of No Return. And so much about albums wasn't just the music, but it was also that art, that album art. Oh yeah. That you could hang up on a wall somewhere. And I, I can't tell you how many album covers and posters I would have all over the ceiling and everything just because of my love for music and discovering new music. So Kansas Point of No Return was one of the first I remember uh, as a kid. So uh, Kevin, what was one of the first vinyl uh, albums or 45s that you remember? And then I'll ask that for Kevin and Jay as well. Uh, first I'll say Kansas Point of is a great friggin' record. And I remember being like, I, I, I was, I was, my father was really into that album. And then he passed that on to me. And I just remember thinking, I was about 11 or 12 when I got into that album. I just remember thinking the fact that no was spelled K-N-O-W was really deep. Like that was, <laughs> that, that was really special to me. And I, I still, I, I love the cover of the boat of the ship going over the waterfall. And, um, the first record that I ever owned that did not belong to my parents, my parents were big record people, but I, I, the first formative musical moment for me that I remember was the debut of MTV. I was eight years old when that happened. And so I was originally like, I was of the cassette generation. Um, but I was started buying music right as that transition was happening. So like my first three albums that I owned were on vinyl. And the first one I owned was from watching that, that first year of MTV. And it was Freeze Frame by the Jay Giles Band. 
Um, now, I was eight, and I had no idea that the Jay Giles Band had had a long and glorious history before they ever before they ever got to this point. And I was an adult when I was like, oh my god, like like they were a '70s blues rock band of six Jewish guys like me from from Boston. I went from Boston, but like th these were all like Jewish guys who loved black music and. Um, and so that's why a nothing but a house party doesn't sound anything like what's on Freeze Frame. But like I, I, I Freeze Frame was the, was the first official album I owned. And when I got back into records as an adult, it was like one of the first I rebought. So I, I, I still cherish my copy of that. Listen that's today. awesome, Christopher. What about you? Uh, so I'm two years younger than Kevin. So my experience with the vinyl was uh, my mom's old turntable was down in our basement. I'm the youngest of three boys. So I, I didn't have any actual like albums that I remember, but my older brother uh, had 45s that made, that were down in the basement and I would play Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. And then I'd swap that out for Summer Loving from Greece. And that just, you know, that set worked. I don't know why, but it did. And, and, I, and I had a, I had, like um, I had a flexi disc uh, that was like alien singing happy birthday, but they included <laughs> your name on that as well. And so that was like, whoa, that was, that was, that was wild to me. And then of course I had the Fisher Price record player up in my bedroom. So that had, you know, Sesame Street uh, records. We had those, I remember that. Um, but then uh, of the ones that I had for myself, I do remember I had, um, I had an air supply at 45 and I were convinced, I was convinced it was a woman singing. Yeah. I remember that. Um, uh, and then I had a and then so that would have been like 1980 but like a few years later I, I know I had a 45 for gotta be starting something by Michael Jackson but it never had thriller um, on an album and and like Kevin I, I grew up buying albums on cassette so the first album I ever owned was on cassette that was Huey Lewis and the new sports so anyway went from that went from there and so it, for me again it wasn't getting back into records until 2014 that I actually really appreciated it I, I, I did work in a record store right after college but that was we were way into the CD era at that point in time and in fact, like nobody was selling vinyl heart at, 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 in a store that was selling new music at that point in time. Again, the only vinyl that was coming out was like Pearl Jam's Vitology and Stone Temple Pilots Purple because they did whatever Pearl Jam did. So um, that was it. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's been a lot of fun to get back into it. And just, I really feel like, like what I was missing in terms of my connection to, to music. That's awesome. Jay, what about you? When I was real small, we had these little kitty records, and I have kept them uh, of All just right. children's songs. <laughs> and uh, these, you can see, we drew on them as oh, we were nice. spinning around. <laughs> and I've kept them all these years as, you know, warm and fuzzy thing. But the first pop single I bought, and I've got it somewhere, I can't find it right now, it's Paul McCartney and Wings doing Jet from 1974. Oh, sure, I yeah. kept that one, and it is somewhere in some box in this apartment, and now I've got to find it. But I think the first real album I bought was were those KTEL Greatest Hits albums, where they would shove like 40 hit singles on there for $3.99. And, and what you didn't know was they faded all the songs out after three minutes so that they could shove some more songs on there. Uh, but th that had to be the first pop album I ever bought was a KTEL album. Oh, yeah, I have man. all of them. Well, <laughs> like, we're watching Meet Me in the Movies. We have the filmmakers, uh, Kevin Smokler and Christopher Boone from the uh, documentary Vinyl Nation. We're gonna come back right after this quick intermission. Uh, Jay Phelps joining us from Nashville as well to chime in with some questions. Uh, thanks for joining us right here on C19 TV and WGWG.org and Elements of Madness. Uh, stick around after this quick intermission. We'll be back with more. They're gonna put me in the movies. They're gonna make a big star out of me. 
Hello and welcome back to Meet Me at the Movies. Noel T. Manning II here with Jay Phelps, Christopher Boone, and Kevin Smokler. Kevin and uh, Chris are the filmmakers behind the documentary Vinyl Nation. And uh, Vinyl Nation, I, I loved so many different aspects of this. I loved getting to know these characters, these real people. Uh, and there was one quote that I wrote down that I loved, and this was a couple and and they 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 seemed as different as night and day but there were so many similarities and uh his quote about his wife said she taught me how to dance again she was like kevin bacon and i was like that whole town and i loved that quote because i think in so many ways people who rediscover vinyl kind of feel that way they they feel this sense of rediscovery uh, and they, they feel the sense of nostalgia and, and reconnecting again. And then even for those that may have never had vinyl in their lives, there is this sense of something new, even though it's been around, but it's almost like this Indiana Jones thing. It's like, wow, look, what is this? What am I holding here? What am I feeling here? So um, Kevin and Chris, talk, if you would, about the interviews that really connected with you? I know it's hard to pick, and I'm not saying choose a favorite, but I'm saying choose an interview that really connected with you, whether it was a quote or just someone you spoke to and why. And we'll start, Chris, with you on this one. Oh, sure. Um, there are two interviews that always kind of pop into my mind, um, similar to kind of what you were talking about there, um, because uh, there are two people that if you were to meet them separately and not in connection with our film at all, they're they feel like they're two totally different people from very different worlds. Um, and, and it was, uh, it's Rosalie and Cupmaster Kurt. And, and Rosalie in her, her regular life is a VP with the Ms. Foundation. Uh, she lives in Harlem and does amazing work with the Ms. Foundation, but she is a serious, serious record collector. She is so serious about her record collecting. This is not in the movie that when, when she could travel, because she had to travel a lot for work before this pandemic, um, wherever she went to another city, as soon as she got off the plane, but before she would go to the hotel, she'd stop at a record store so she could dig. Because she knew that in every city, you're going to find diffused records. And if she didn't go and get it out of the way, she would kick herself. And she said, there's like only one time she's traveled that she didn't do that. And she was really mad about it. So she went back to that city. And it was like an international trip. She went back to like a Casbar to, to, to <laughs> dig. So she is very serious about her digging. So it's Cutmaster Kurt. I mean, he's a DJ. His life is about creating samples and beats and producing these things for other people. And it's all coming from digging and finding records. But it wasn't just that, that they're both into digging. They both told stories that are in our film and we cross cut the two of them about finding places to live and looking at the space and going, well, where am I gonna put on records? And both of their spouses said essentially the same thing. Like, this place is perfect for you because you could put all your records out here on display. And they both said, man, I'm so lucky that I found this person to share my life with because they get me and they get my records. Like the records are such a huge part of their lives. And again, this was unprompted. We didn't have questions around this whatsoever, but to hear those two stories and be able to cross cut between those two, I just, I just loved it. So those are some really special moments for me. Kevin, what about you? We talked to 45 people for Vinyl Nation. And I, I think as we did a lot of pre-screening and talking to people on the phone before we ever showed up at their door with a camera. But like, I think, I think we had a certain warmth in our heart for everybody. And we were fortunate that we could fit a little bit of everybody 
in the movie somehow. Um, and I think like, I, I'm gonna pick, I'm just gonna pick two people who I think, I think kind of defy the conventional expectations we have of when someone says, these are the kind of records I'm into. Um, one was a guy named Jean-Luc, whose last name I can never pronounce, who owns, who owns the legendary punk record store, Headline Records in West Hollywood. And, uh, and Jean-Luc is French and uh, and was 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 the happiest owner of a punk rock record store I've ever met. Or um, and uh, and at the end of, of of our filming of our filming session, uh, because everybody who owned a record store let us in like an hour before they filmed, so we weren't disturbing business. Um, there was a, like a big banging on the door, and he opened it. He he literally opened the door, and about a dozen like scruffy twenty one year old kids kind of piled in the kind of rolled in the door. Uh, uh, and, and they were like, oh God, thank God you're open. And it's like, it's like a Tuesday morning in April. And like, this is, this is their clubhouse, man. And, uh, and they were just, it was like, they'd been waiting for an hour, you know, to be there. Um, and then of course I asked him, like, I asked him like, what would you recommend to me? Someone who got into punk music at age 37, not at age 16. Uh, and he just thinks, and he goes, he goes, I, I have an idea for you. Chuck Berry playing punk music. <laughs> Old rock and roll, but punk. Buy a band from Belgium. Buy a band from Belgium. And I was like, sold. Just hand it to me right now. And it was the first album by this band from Antwerp called The Kids. And sure enough, it sounds like a bunch of bratty Belgian teenagers playing vintage rock and roll. And it's beautiful. Wow. Yeah. And then... The next day in Los Angeles, we filmed we filmed this woman named Logan Melissa who lives in Ventura and is famous for recreating album covers using herself. So she will uh, she will do a she will do a thing where you know where like like on the front of the Pretenders live, learning to crawl where there are five band members. She will dress as each of the five band members, shoot herself separately, and then patch it together with Photoshop. Um, and Logan, you know. Logan is really, uh, Logan has incredibly diverse taste, but is really into like, is really into like American soul and funk and, uh, and, uh, and hip hop music, particularly from, from growing up and being a native of Southern California. And you'd look at her and you, you'd look at her, this sort of tall, willowy blonde woman, and you'd say, and, and you wouldn't guess that immediately. And she speaks so eloquently and so passionately about it. Even though records themselves are not the most convenient way to listen to music, they really do encourage uh there's an aspect of treasure hunting and, and exploration with them that encourages all of us to like to like grow our musical universes as opposed to shrink them that i really love absolutely jay go for it buddy there was nothing more fun for me uh in college uh going to the record store and spending who knows how long they are just going through things and waiting for some new release to come in and get it. Uh, I went to Appalachian State, which is in Boone, and uh, there was a school kids records. I don't know if it was a big chain or a small chain, but they were near the campus. And that was just a big thing to me to go to school kids records. And I remember uh, oh, Zenyatta Mandata from The Police coming out. Yes. And what a cool album that was, and all the photos on it, and the whole the whole package. And I, I really agree with a lot of the people you had on there who were talking about the tactile sense of holding music, which is something you just don't get with a CD. You know, there's uh, I, I really miss that. I really enjoy that. It's a warm and fuzzy for me. Yeah, I always loved being able to open up the albums, looking at the liner notes, looking at the artwork on in the inside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
lyric sheets when they had them you know when they didn't have lyrics online you know like they do now you'd have to figure out what the lyrics were supposed to be and there have been plenty of times growing up in the vinyl age that my next door neighbor and I had a few arguments and debates about what <laughs> Billy Joel actually said in the, the mm, yeah. you know was it mama leave home and left a note on the door or was it or was it mama Leone left a note on the door you know what so, exactly was Manford man saying in blinded by the light <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> wow. I mean, I could, before we went on the air, you said you guys could talk for three or four hours and I could as well. This is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Love the documentary. Uh, I love how it, it speaks to so many aspects of why vinyl mattered and still does uh, and why it still connects uh, and, and makes a difference in the lives of, of those who have relationships with it and for different reasons. Um, so I want to give you a chance to have any final thoughts or final comments that you want to share with our audience about uh, the documentary Vinyl Nation. Uh, and uh, Kevin, we'll start with you and then go to Kevin. Uh, I'm sorry, then go to Christopher. Uh, and then Jay, if you have any final thoughts as well. I just want to say like, like it is, we were, we were lucky to film uh, two different places in North Carolina. We filmed at, we filmed at Ember Audio and Design, which is a fantastic audio shop in Winston-Salem. Uh, and uh, Chris Livengood, who I had known from his time living here in California, was kind of our guide to does, do records actually sound better, which is a, which is a, a, a fratricidal debate we take on in this movie. Uh, we don't come up with an answer, but but uh, we'll, we'll leave that to you to decide which one. Um, and, uh, and of course, we couldn't make a movie about records and not film at Merge Records in, in Durham. Um, so we have been, we've been very fortunate to spend, to, to spend time, virtual time with this movie in North Carolina and really glad the movie is still playing uh, and has been really warmly supported by Aperture Cinema in, in Winston-Salem and Grail House Cinema in Asheville. Um, and uh, and we just thank everybody from North Carolina for being for being the best example of citizens of Vinyl Nation. Absolutely, Chris. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would I would just echo that. I mean, one of the best part of making this movie was getting to travel all around the country again. Little did we know, <laughs> you know, that that seems like such a distant memory being able to do that. And it wasn't just going to the the obvious places like New York and L.A. and then and and Nashville, Jay. You know, where you expect there to be, you know. Uh, uh, music and artists and, and record labels and things like that. It was going to the places like Winston-Salem and, and Durham, North Carolina um, and Merritt Island, Florida and Salina, Kansas. Just again, these, these places where you wouldn't necessarily realize that there are hubs um, or really interesting people doing really cool things with vinyl records. Um, and so that and, and just getting to discover the country that way and meet so many different people and really just go on our own discovery, uh, journey of discovery, not just about the subject that we were, were talking about, but also having people introduce us to music, new music. Um, that was one of the best parts about it. If we were ever offered a record, people would typically ask, well, what are you into? And I would say like, no, 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 no. You tell me what I should be listening to and now you give it to me. And some of my favorite records right now are the ones that we, we collected along the way when people gave those to wow. us. So yeah. Um, we, and and like, I just really appreciate places like Aperture Cinema and, and Grail Movie House supporting the film, putting it in their virtual cinemas, and then people buying a ticket and, you know, 50% of their ticket proceeds go to our partners. So please support them during these times when a number of them can actually open up. But 
Right. Well, Chris, uh, Chris, thank you so much. Uh, Kevin as well. Jay, final thoughts, uh, final comments. I really enjoyed this movie, and it really made me want to buy some more vinyl. <laughs> it really did. It and kind we've of done our job. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of forgot how much I love the stuff, and wish I'd held on to everything I'd ever bought. So uh, you you did a good job with that. Many of people have uh, actually bought turntables because they watched our film, even though they didn't know they were into records, they were, they watched it. So, <laughs> well, I love the diversity of what this film offered. Uh, you know, you, you see the passion that people have, you talk about that tangibility of holding it. And there is a deliberateness to investing your time and energy into something like vinyl. And I think back to my mom, working in radio, I think the, about my first job as a non-paid intern working in, in radio at a, a block format station where I was introduced to every type of music you can imagine. And then working in several record stores uh, throughout that transition from vinyl to cassette to the introduction of CD. And uh, I just really uh, am thankful for this documentary to be able to go back and revisit all of those thoughts. And I know, Jay, for you, who have you've worked in this industry uh, for your career and yeah, yeah. going back to when you were a, a college student. And so I'm, I'm sure that it was a lot of fun for you to revisit it in this way as well. Oh, definitely, definitely. Well, guys, yes. if, uh, if folks wanted to check out Vinyl Nation, what is the best way? A website, uh, Twitter handle, Instagram. What do you want to share with our listeners and our viewers? Yeah, you can you can find out everything you need at vinylnationfilm.com, where you can also see the trailer, and you'll see a button there that says where to watch. Uh, and if you want to support one of your local North Carolina cinemas, you just click on North Carolina, and it lists all of our partners in that state. The movie, movie is available through partners in 35 states, including the District of Columbia, and each partner gets 50% of the ticket proceeds. Uh, purchasing a ticket enables you to watch the movie for 72 hours on the home computer system of your choice. So. Awesome, awesome. Kevin, Chris, uh, Jay, thank you all for joining us today right here on Meet Me at the Movies. Uh, the film is Vinyl Nation. Uh, I encourage you to check it out if you love music, if you love documentaries, uh, if you just love uh, engaging in characters. Got a few of them here as well. So until next time, I'm Noel T. Manning II, and that is a wrap.